The word of the Lord from Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. We come here hungry, Lord, and we ask that you feed us. We come here thirsty, and we ask that you would satisfy us with water that will never end. We come here lonely, nameless, broken, hurting, and we seek your comfort. We seek your friendship. We seek your love and acceptance and that new name and that new home that only you can give us all because of what Christ has done, and in whose name we worship you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
it's hard for me to read this passage without two things going on simultaneously in my mind. Um, the first one is I, I can't help but read this and not hear the song. You know the song? Peter and John went to pray, met a, poor, a layman on the way, walking and leaping praising. You know that song, right? I'm not going to sing it, so don't, don't worry about that. I can't read this without hearing that. And then, but the second one, and, and even more dear to me, is uh, while Cheryl and I were in college at that great state university on the eastern border, um, one of our mentors with FCA was, was a man named John Christopher, just a, a godly, faithful, uh, wonderful guy who really poured his life into our kids. He was someone who came to faith uh, as an older man out of... Uh, Pretty, pretty rough background, uh, struggle with alcoholism and stuff. And, and John, John just had a, a, just this incandescent passion for the Lord. And this is one of his favorite passages. I, I can hear him talking about how this man was healed, walking and leaping and praising God. And he had this really high kind of thin voice. And I can still, it echoes in my mind when I hear it. So, it's John, this is for you. <laughs> this is one of his favorite stories. But there's a, there's a challenge with this passage. And the challenge is that we, we have all sorts of ideas about how to read Acts. And, and Acts is a, a tricky one because there's things that are happening that are, that are very local, very uh, contemporary to the time and place of this moment. And then there's stuff underneath it that has broader implications for us. And we need to be careful not to mix the two. Um, Acts, as you probably know, is something that... that the implications of that are something that Christians have debated over the years. How do we read this? How do we understand this? How do we apply this? Are we, are we meant to replicate Pentecost Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Is the real church, is real worship to look like that day in Acts 2? Or was it a specific moment in a specific time in God's plan that, that, that is being worked out there and it has broader significance than that? Um, it's sort of like, and, and I see some of my students are here. I think they've heard me talk about this before. It reminds me a bit of, of one of my favorite movies, um, Mary Poppins. Not ashamed to say that. The beauty of Mary Poppins is that there is a story within a story that is easily overlooked if you're not listening to what's not so much being said, but what's being sung. Everything in the story is crafted towards the, the person, right? Towards Mary Poppins. This wonderful, magical, mysterious uh, woman who flies in, flies out, has all this great imaginative ability and, and some sort of ability to carry that out as well. But the real story underneath that is discoverable in a song that is repeated three different times at the beginning and the middle and the end. Same tune, different words. It's, it's, it's the redemption of the father. The father comes in, opens the whole movie, talking about this great moment in his life. Things are happening. I'm entering into the world. I've got this family. Everything is in its order. We are going to rule like men. It's a great time to be alive. And over the course of the story, that whole dream gets shattered. By the third movement of that same song, He's a broken man. He's lost everything. And in the process, 
In the process, as he first of all wants to blame Mary Poppins for bringing this chaos into his life, he gets redirected to see that he had sacrificed what was most important for that life, and in losing it, finally discovered what he was really meant to be, which was a dad. That's what they needed. Mary Poppins was a proxy, a filler for what he needed to be for them. If you listen to it that way and you, you watch it that way, it is a remarkable story. One of my favorite stories. It's hard for me to get through without crying, but I think fatherhood does that too. I cry at Finding Nemo also, so. <laughs> Dads understand, so I'm not backing down from that. All right. But, but like that, there's, there's a story within a story here that I, I hope to, to pull out. What, what's interesting, really quick, about Mary Poppins is that there is actually another story even behind that one. That, that the reason why, or one of the basic motivations for why P.L. Travers wrote that book, wrote that story, was to redeem her own father. If you've seen the movie Saving Mr. Banks, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a Hollywoodized account. But she grew up with a father that she loved who was hopelessly caught up in alcoholism and died when she was about seven. She loved him and was devoted to him. And part of the motivation of that story was to redeem or to, to save his reputation, to preserve that memory. So, so encourage you to go look at that. Um, go watch that with those eyes if you haven't already. So anyways, looking at this story, again, similarly, pretty straightforward. Here's an account of a healing, a remarkable thing. Peter and John going into the temple. But there's something else going on here. If we don't discern between the two, we might as some have in the past, mistakenly apply some things here that shouldn't be applied to us. And I'll explain more what I mean when we get there. So I want to look at the story in some detail, look at what Peter and John do, and then what they say, and then, and then work out what is, this, what is this larger framework? What's this larger story behind this? Where is this all going? Why is Luke writing this? Where is the thing for us to learn from this today, from God, what God was doing back then? And then consider how we apply it. So um, if you like short, neat little subheadings, I just exploded all that. So do what you will with that. So first there's this amazing act. There you go. There's one heading for you. Peter and John go up to the temple. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, which is, which is a general, generally recognized hour of prayer. So you can imagine in the temple there's a flow of traffic, a foot traffic, in towards the temple to gather in the courts of the temple to pray. And Peter and John were among them. Now... Just note that, because it wasn't so many chapters ago where the disciples, the apostles, were terrified, which makes sense when you think about it. Even though Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, even though they had seen him once again, they knew that he was no longer dead, there was still a very real threat from the temple, from the establishment, to, to get rid of them, to shut this down, to end this thing about Jesus. He's dead. He was wrong. And so they hid. To, to come out now publicly, to go to the temple to pray in, in full sight of everybody is, is something to note. And they come across this man at the outer gate who had been crippled from birth. We, we find out later in chapter 4 that it was more than 40 years that he had, been, he had lived his life as a crippled man. And we see every day, every day, his family brought him to the temple to beg from those going in. There's, there's an idea there, not just of being dependent on a daily basis, not just his family, but in those going to the temple, 
the humiliation of having to beg, as well as the fact that you, in, in, according to some, he may have been considered unclean and not even been able to participate in the worship of the temple. In many ways, an outcast. And we've seen this, we've seen this theme before. This is a common theme in, in the Gospels, where, where someone who's on the margins are the ones that, that get the attention here, not the important ones in the center of the story, but the ones on the outside. And as Peter and John go into the temple, Peter says, I don't have any money, but this is what I give you. And I want you to notice the words that he says here. In the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's doing a couple things there in really short order. And again, I want you to think about this. This is, this is in the, I don't, you can't call it the honeymoon, the hangover period of the crucifixion. This is, this is less than a couple months away from that. This is very much likely a live topic among the people. But, but in, to put those three words together, the Jesus of Nazareth, we know who he's talking about. He's that guy who did those things that then we killed. The false prophet. Peter says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth identifying there as the Christ or as the Messiah. In his name, stand up and walk. Immediately is able to walk. And maybe, perhaps, for the first time, goes into the temple, <laughs> healed, strong, walking and leaping and praising God. It's been lifted. All those years are done. All that suffering, all that pain, all that outcast is done. Praise the Lord. And a crowd quickly gathers. They see this man, they quickly recognized him. And it's interesting to notice the words that Luke uses here to describe their response. They're astonished. They're, they're besides themselves with amazement, which is interesting, isn't it? Because this is Jerusalem again. Didn't Jesus heal in Jerusalem? Yes, he did. I mean, the stories about Jesus were, were about healings. Healings were not something new and completely out of the blue. And not simply because they read the Gospels beforehand, but this is still fairly fresh. So, so why were they amazed? I, I was, there's probably four possibilities that we can consider here. Were they amazed, first of all, that someone had been healed? It's possible. I, mean, I don't know that would ever get old or commonplace. That's certainly one thing. Were, were they amazed that this man had been healed because it had been such a long time? Had he been one of those that's just relegated to the bin of just, you're going to be a chronic sufferer. It's too late for you. God's not going to do it. Were they amazed that these men had healed him? Now, the disciples had healed before. Remember that when Jesus sent out the 72. But the accounts of this that we have are when they were in the northern part of Israel and not in Jerusalem itself. If we read the scriptures and assume that, that although there's many other things that happened, John tells us, outside of what was contained in the Gospels, that Jesus did and said, it's possible that there's some places where they may have, but we don't have any real record of that. So there is a possibility that, that only Jesus was the healing guy, if I can put it that way. And there was some surprise and shock and amazement that these guys are healing. Or related to that, were they amazed because a miracle happened without Jesus around? 
Do they think that miracles like that had died with Jesus? And it's probably a possibility that all four are in the air. But it is worth noting. It is worth considering. Like, why, why were they amazed? Why were they so surprised at this? Well, the crowd gathers, and then Peter and the group moves back outside of the temple and sees even more people coming. And so he seizes the opportunity to speak to the crowd. We can break down what he says into three parts here. First, he explains what happens. This wasn't us. Strange. I mean, it was. He spoke to them. But we didn't do this. We, didn't, we don't have the power to do this, nor was it by our piety, nor was it by our, our godly living, our godly practices. We, we don't have any sort of connection ourselves to power that would enable us to do this. So why are you looking at us? He was healed, and I want you to go, go down to verse 13, and again, watch how he phrases this. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's not even pointing to Jesus yet. He's pointing to God. This is why you're in the temple. This is who you've just been praying to. This is who you offer the sacrifices to. Priests and rabbis, this is who you're preaching to us. This God, what's he done? He's glorified his servant, Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release them. Bad news. God is not on your side. The one that he sent, his son, his chosen son, his beloved son, his Messiah, is the one whom he was glorifying in healing this man who is also the one whom you killed. <laughs> yes, that one. He is the one that our prophets told us about. He's the one that Abraham told us about. He's the one whom Moses told us about. He's the one who Samuel and all the rest told us about. Jesus was the one. He is, he was the Messiah. And you find yourself now thinking you were serving God when actually you were rejecting him. Jesus warned them about this, didn't he? If you, you go back to Luke 20, I won't read the whole thing, but there's, there's that parable that Jesus tells them about the, the one who owned the vineyard, the garden, the orchard. And he, he kept sending people to help. He put people over this garden to keep it and sent messengers to see how it was going. And with each one, the, the, the people that he had first hired took them and killed them and threw them out of the orchard. And said, finally, the man considers, well, I'll send my son. I'll send him to him. And they'll listen to him, surely. And they don't. And they kill him. And he was, Luke tells us, he was directing this towards the leaders who hated Jesus. And now here we are. This is you. You are the workers of the vineyard. Jesus was the son. God is the owner of this. And you're in trouble. Can you imagine hearing that? Have you ever had your perspective changed on something where you, you thought one thing, you were convinced of something, you, you saw things one way, and somehow somebody gave you a different perspective or light shined or, or your eyes were open and you're able to see, oh, I got that completely wrong. If you misunderstood someone's motives, intentions, or thoughts, 
you assumed and acted on something and come to realize it was the exact opposite. You're just like, ah, oh, what have I done? Well, furthermore, what, what do you say to this when you have a healed guy standing right next to them? It's not just persuasion with words. You have, a, you have living proof right in front of you. What do you do with him if this isn't true? Peter doesn't stop there. There's good news that follows the bad news. God desires to forgive you. He knew, he knew that you acted in ignorance, that in part you had been misled by your leaders. You trusted your leaders. You, they were misguided, misled, twisted themselves. But, but moreover, all of this had to happen, guys. All of this had to go according to plan. This is the bigger story. You killed the Messiah, but there's something much bigger going on there that has implications for all of us, right? That's why we're here. Jesus had to die. He had to be rejected by his own people. It had to happen this way, and yet, and yet, you are still responsible for this. So God calls you to repent. God calls you to recognize what you've done, to own it, and to come back to him. And times of refreshing will follow. Forgiveness is there for you. Now, I want, I want to pause for a moment. This is one of those things where I'm talking about how local this, this passage is. There, there's two dangers here if we don't recognize that. One, and this is, this is, there's some historical context or historical evidence for this, is that we view the Jewish people as the murderers of Jesus. That would be wrong. That would be a misunderstanding. He is talking to the people who are actually there in that moment, who were there during that time, who joined in this revolt against Jesus, this, this mass towards getting rid of him. But that's far different than applying that label across the board. I forgot my other point. If it comes back to me, I'll, I'll, I'll remind myself. Dang it. Hate it when that happens. Ah, I lost it. Shoot. So it's there somewhere. Ask me later. Maybe I'll remember. Um, but that's where we, we move on then to, to this bigger story. What, what's behind all this? As Peter's indicating, this, this miracle is part of the unfolding significance of Pentecost. Which one of the things that we should be asking ourselves again and again as we read through Acts, what was the purpose of this outpouring of the Spirit? It's not, not one that we, I think, often ask, and, and I think more so not really answer well. We just look at it, that happened, then it happens now. But I think there's more significance there than we realize, and it's given to us in the text. Remember what Jesus told them back in chapter 1. You will receive power... When the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And backing up even further, if we bring John into this, which is okay because John's also an apostle, but John also has this, this place where Jesus is talking to his disciples about his coming departure. I'm going to leave you. And they're sad. Sad because they love him. And I would add, probably a little scared. Like, how are we going to do this? We're not up to this. How, how are we going to survive and Jesus says, I, I understand your sadness. But unless I leave, the comforter can't come to you. 
The Comforter will come to you, will be present with you, will continue that, that, that ongoing uh, purpose of God to be present with his people. It's a great theme to study. Wish I had time to talk about it today, but I don't. Um, but he'd be present with you and would bring to mind all the things that you are to recall, all the things that you need in those moments. He will be with you to help you, to guide you. It's necessary. And Jesus says much the same thing here in this passage. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So at least three things so far in Acts, up to chapter three, that, that, that this, this outpouring of the Spirit meant. First, even though Jesus was gone, God was still with him. Still with them, dwelling with them. Even though we watched Jesus go up to heaven, they were not alone. They were not on their own. God was with them. And in an unshakable way now, not, not walking along outside them, but in them, with them. Second, and as a result, the outpouring spirit meant that they were divinely authorized to take over Jesus' work to speak, and to act in his name. Now, that, that sounds kind of strange, because I, I, think, I think we maybe think in terms of authority being self-evident. But I want you to think about the Gospels and how often authority comes up. Who gave you the right to speak this way? Who gives you the right to speak to demons that way? Who do you think you are? Who sent you? Authority is really important there. And so another meaning, another, another really important aspect of this outpouring of the Spirit is that the disciples are authorized now. By whom? By God. They are, they are literally taking on his mantle to, do, to continue his work now that he's away. There, there's a parallel of this in the Old Testament um, with the prophet Elijah. Elijah is taken up by uh, the, the chariots of fire. Uh, Elisha prays. Elisha, who had been Elijah's disciple, prays that, that some of Elijah's anointing, that his mantle, it's a word that we use in a lot of different ways, that his mantle would fall to me. And, and his, part of his clothing fell off of the chariots of fire, and, and Elisha picked it up and put it on and prayed, God, you know, did you answer my prayer? And touches the water and it parts. So that now Elisha was authorized to speak in the way, in the means of Elijah. It had passed on to him. In much the same way, I would argue, the disciples, the apostles in particular, have been authorized and also, number three, empowered for this work. They're given the words to say. They're given the boldness to say it, the conviction to say it. One of the things that, that, I'll be honest, bothers me about this passage because I want so badly to understand how this applies to us today is how did Peter know to say that to the man at that moment? How did he know that would happen when he said, I don't have any money, but I give you this. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Because I know what's going on in my head. That's probably about a 20% proposition of happening. Maybe less. And I would sure hate to be wrong on this. Kind of tugging at him, he stays down. It's like, now what? <laughs> that was my best shot, now I'm done. Authority, credibility, all that's gone. How did he know? There's a certainty there that, that, that Peter had when he told this man to get up and walk and he was able to do that. 
So, so those three things, and I, I would say there's not, those are not the only three things, but those are three key things to understand when you look at the giving of the Spirit and what that meant. But the other thing I want you to notice is as a result, the disciples were transformed themselves. They were no longer afraid of the Jews or what they could do to them. They went out where the people were to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And, and most importantly, they, they relied and saw the work of the Spirit through what they proclaimed, didn't they? Jesus gives us, or Peter gives us message, fairly lengthy message to the people of Israel after Pentecost and says, you know, here's what's happening. This is what was prophesied. And they were cut to the heart by Peter's words. Maybe they found him persuasive, but I think we're meant to read as the Spirit convicted them. The Spirit opened their eyes, and we see Luke use that language again and again. Something like scales fell off Paul's eyes. He was able to understand. The Spirit not only is present, but works through his people, using the things that we say, using the things that we do to open eyes, to open ears, to change hearts, that people are able to see, hear, comprehend, and believe. Amen? Otherwise, we have no hope, friends. I don't care how persuasive you are. Unless the Spirit is working through us, we have no hope. But that is not the situation we find ourselves in. And that's, that's where I want to bring us at the end. What does this mean for us? It's important for us, and I, I don't think this is hard to see, that we see ourselves as downstream from Pentecost. We are here because of Pentecost. Have you considered that? We, we are tied to Acts 2 in very significant ways. And when Jesus was preparing his disciples to go out, he wasn't just looking at the range that they would be able to accomplish in their lifetimes, looking beyond that to bringing us in. I mean, look around the room. Ends of the earth indeed. We are not just the, the results of that day, we are the heirs of that day. What they received from Jesus has been passed down over history to now us. We have the same spirit, do we not? He is with us. God is with us now. He is empowering us in all sorts of ways. I, don't, I am not prepared in a friend's pulpit to tackle the issue of some of the manifestations here. I would be happy to talk about it on the side. But I am not persuaded that there is a continuation of those things in the way that we find in Pentecost. I think they were signaling the shift from Jesus to this next age of the Spirit up until Jesus returns. That's all I'm going to say about it. Do what you will with that. But we are the heirs of Pentecost. It's our turn now to go and to make disciples, to testify to Christ, to call people to repentance, to proclaim the forgiveness of God in the name of Jesus from sins, that they might be brought home, that, st that streams of refreshing would come to them. We are his authorized messengers now. Are we aware of that? Have we taken that to heart? Or are we more like the disciples in hiding from what we find. Hiding from what people will think of us. Hiding from what we see happening in the culture at large. 
hiding from all the different scary things, fears, uncertainties that are out there. Using what we do here, what God has blessed us with here, this congregation, this church, using this as something to protect us and shield us from the world rather than an outpost to go out into the world to shine his lights. What are we afraid of if we are Christians? How many times in scripture are we told, if God is for us, finish it. Who can stand against us? Who can stand against us? Secular humanists? Communists? Atheists? Blankists? Fill it in. Who can stand against us? But it's not by our powers, not by our strength. It's by boldly and humbly and obediently going in the name of Christ out and making him known through what we say and how we live, how we treat each other here matters. But it also matters how we treat our neighbors and friends out there. All of it needs to be Christ-shaped. And it's through our words and through our lives and through our actions that the Spirit can and must work to open eyes of others, to bring them in. My fear is that we have, we've accepted that truth but listened to something else. And so we're afraid. Friends, we cannot be afraid. It denies what we've been given. It denies who we are as Christians. And there's no cause for it. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's hard. Yes, we stand all, face all sorts of consequences for standing with Christ in that way. Not the least of which from some of our fellow Christians. But we must. Because God is with us. Jesus has sent us to be his witness in the world. He's given us his spirit. He's coming back one day for us where we will give account of what he has entrusted us with. Oh, if you could see it, the excitement that we could have, the purpose that we could have, how we would run with this, with joy, with hope, let the world throw its worst at us. Give us the hardest cases. Nothing can stand before God. So my prayer for us is that as the church was transformed from a frightened huddle, seeking to preserve their lives, the Spirit enlivened their hearts to comprehend what Christ had done for them, what God had given them in the spirit and the hope that lied ahead, that they lost that fear. Or maybe they didn't lose that fear, but the hope outweighed that fear. And they went for it. They went for it. And look how God used them. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to see this. Help us to take this as heart. It is so easy to find things to be afraid of. It's so easy to see dangers around us. It's so easy to want to protect what is our own. That's not our calling. It's not our calling. We belong to you. We belong to the creator of the universe. We belong to the once and future king. We belong to the spirit of God. 
We, we belong to a completely different place. And it's here that we're meant to live and speak and act and rejoice and grieve as messengers of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn us outward, Lord. Remove our fear. Give us boldness as the church and the early church prayed for. That we put aside the things that frighten us, that we would turn away from other, promise, other things that promise us strength and power and victory. And let's come back to you, our true strength, our one and only God and Savior, our only hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray.